Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall. The prolific Pete Brown is back to talk about his new book, Clubland, How the Working Men's Club Shaped Britain, as well as another book he was the chief writer on, The World's Greatest Beers. He'll join me from London in just a moment. But first, All About Beer is back online and producing original content for beer enthusiasts and professionals. Visit allaboutbeer.com to see the latest. And if you want to support us in that endeavor, we've set up a Patreon for both readers and professional companies in the beer space. Check out patreon.com slash allaboutbeer to learn more. And we're able to bring you this show each week thanks to the companies that support independent journalism in the beer space. Learn more about our surprisingly affordable rates by emailing sponsor at beeredge.com. As he does from time to time, Jack Hendler of Jack's Abbey is joining me on the line. The brewery is a sponsor of this episode, and we're thankful for that. And we're talking about the brewery's Lager of the World series. And this time, the brewery is headed to Argentina. Jack, welcome back. Thanks for doing this. The Tell us about this collaboration and what you learned about brewing with grape must. Yeah, this was a really interesting collaboration here. And while we've used wine must in the past for some of our barrel aged sour beers, we've never actually used wine must for a lager beer. So this was a really fun project learning how to ferment a very simple sugar ingredient but causes some really interesting challenges for yeast health and yeast fermentation. So we learned a lot using wine must in this beer. What, what are some of the challenges? Some of the challenges with wine must is that there's no nutrients in it. And the brewer's yeast that we normally use is expecting all these nutrients that barley brings to the table. So by using a very high concentration of sugar, we've sort of diluted our nutrient base and we've had to implement some interesting fermentation techniques, including croisoning, in order to finish this fermentation. Cool. Well, uh, great must aside, uh, tell us a little bit more about Lagers of the World, Destination Argentina. So we were really inspired to bring some of the flavors of Argentina along with our lager focus here at the brewery. So we came up with brewing a Pilsner-style beer using some Southern Hemisphere hops that also have some of that vinous character. We use some Nelson salmon from uh, New Zealand and really trying to create that great vinous character in this finished beer. That's awesome. Well, thanks, Jack. And you're going to be back with us at the bottom of the show to talk more about this very cool collaboration. But in the meantime, I'm going to encourage folks to visit jacksabbey.com to learn more about this beer as well as the brewery. And today's episode is also sponsored by Stomp Stickers. Stomp is a proud member of the Brewers Association that produces a wide variety of printed brewery products, such as beer labels, keg collars, coasters, beer boxes, and much more. Stomp's website features an easy-to-use design tool, low-quantity orders, fast turnaround times, and free domestic shipping. Visit stompstickers.com and use code BEEREDGE15 for 15% off of your first order. Pete Brown is an award-winning writer and author whose curiosity has led him deep into the history of food and drink. And along the way, he's uncovered forgotten stories, helped shape the understanding of beer, and enhanced readers through his ability to convey a keen sense of place and voice. His latest book was just released, 
It's called Clubland, How the Working Men's Club Shaped Britain. And in it, he charts the club's early beginning, booming popularity, influence on popular culture, and eventual decline. In the pages, read some promo copy, Pete explores the club's role of defining masculinity, community, and class identity for generations of men in Britain's industrial towns. They were, at their best, a vehicle for social mobility and self-improvement, run as cooperatives for working people by working people, an informal, community-owned precursor to the welfare state. From there, we're going to transition to another book. It's called The World's Greatest Beers, 250 Beers from Pilsen to Portland, which will be released by Camera Books this August. Pete is the chief writer on this book that includes entries from other well-known writers in the beer space, yours truly included. We're going to talk about how to build out such a list, the eventual flack that will be flung, and what goes into enjoying a great beer aside from taste. So let's get into it. Mr. Brown joined me from his office in London. Here's our conversation. But I imagine like most writers and most authors, you have a list somewhere on a piece of paper, on a Word document of short ideas yeah. that maybe could become a book one day. And parts of ideas as well. Um, it's been really interesting. The last two or three books I've done, um, I've had a couple of things. One is this, 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 this sort of scary kind of urge to include memoir as, as coming to it. As I get to my fifties, I'm writing about my childhood and the past and stuff. And the other thing is that there's bits and pieces that have been discarded for years, which suddenly seem relevant. Um, so I, in 1999, I wrote a diatribe against eggs um, <laughs> and about how, how eggs are, uh, you can have, there are several thousand possible permutations of ingredients in a full English breakfast. Um, and you can have all, the, all these different options, um, but eggs are constant. That You can't have an English breakfast without eggs. So I wrote that in 1999, and there I was in 2017 writing a book about British cuisine, and suddenly this bit about eggs has a perfect little place for it to slot into. So there's bits and pieces of books now that are 10, 20 years old that are kind of cropping up into things. How long was Clubland on your list before you got to it? So I pitched it as my second book. Uh, after I finished Man Walks Into a Pub, uh, my next idea was to write a social history of the Working Men's Club movement. And that was down to, A, my memories, again, of being very small and what working men's clubs meant to me at that point. Uh, but B, I was researching, for Man Walks Into a Pub, I was researching the history of British licensing law um, as, a, as, as part of my overall history of beer and drinking in Britain. And I came across the 1872 Licensing Act, which um, for the first time instituted mandatory closing times for pubs. Um, but these mandatory closing times didn't apply to private clubs, uh, private members' clubs. Uh, and this was seen as uh, a very clear, uh, by, by most of the British public, it was seen as a very clear intention to, to curtail the vast majority of people from drinking, while upper-class people, MPs, judges, army generals, could carry on drinking in their clubs with impunity. Um, yeah. And... And then the Working Men's Club movement said, well, we're private members clubs. And uh, the licensing authority said, we didn't mean you. And they said, well, the, the law says private members clubs and we're private members clubs. 
So, so this was kind of this example of working men starting a movement that outsmarted uh, the authorities. And it was a side of working men's clubs that I'd never come across before. And I thought, this is curious. I want to look more into this. And the idea of the club as an alternative to the pub, uh, but you know, a place which is owned and run by the people who, who drink there. Uh, and I thought, this is an interesting thing uh, to, re- to research. So I just finished my history of beer and pubs. And it seemed like a logical next step. And my publisher went, well, yeah, um, but only old people in the north of England would, would want to read this. And old people in the north of England don't read. So, no. <laughs> and I, I pitched it. I've pitched it maybe six times since then and got the same answer from London-based publishers. So you moved on to other books, though. But this, yeah. this idea never left your mind, no. clearly. No, so each time I got with a new publisher and did a book with them, uh, after that book went, I would pitch this again. Uh, so I pitched it after Shakespeare's Local. I pitched it after The Apple Orchard. Uh, I've, I've pitched it, yeah, about four or five times, I think. And then over lockdown, um, so we have, if, if there are any of your listeners who, who think that maybe London is the whole of England um, or <laughs> represents the whole of England, which is an impression that we kind of put across in our media, um, you know, L- London is where everything is based. Uh, certainly in the publishing industry. Uh, I'm from the north of England, which is traditionally uh, the industrial working class area of of England. Um, And it's underrepresented. We have a great thing about the north-south divide. Um, Everything everything is done for London and the the southeast, and very little uh, government infrastructure support gets to the north. Um, And what's interesting now is that some of these publishers are opening kind of northern satellite branches in cities like Manchester and Leeds. And they're saying, so this one, Harper North, which is a subsidiary of HarperCollins, said, we're opening this branch in, in Manchester. We want to build a list of northern writers, it's topics about the north, people from the north. Pete, have you got any ideas that we might be interested in? And I'm like, let me just open my bottom drawer one more time and <laughs> bring out the, the dusty old clubland proposal. And they bit my arm off for it. It was fantastic. So when I first heard the description of the book, and th- this is probably the American in me, but when you hear men's club, mm. uh, there is a, 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 a certain image that comes to mind um, here in the U.S. of you know, exotic dances and yes. all, all sorts. Obviously, this is not that. Um <laughs> No, yeah. funnily enough, the, the, the term gentleman's club has become a euphemism for that kind of club, which I, which I find quite grimly funny. Um, <laughs> yeah. it's, 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 it's like you can tell a really cheap cigarette brand because they're called Ambassador or Regal or something like that. The scuzzier this gets, the potchier we're going to make it sound. Um, and no, the Working Men's Club movement was begun for a for a bunch of reasons really um it, yeah we had the first industrial revolution in the world and that within the space of a generation families who'd been working on fields were suddenly in cities and the men were all working together in tight close-knit groups and there's a lot in history written about working conditions um it, the, the the kind of history of what that meant for people from a kind of overall uh uh, living perspective. Very little has been written about the the leisure time of people in the Victorian era, and in the cities, basically all forms of leisure were banned. Um, 
and there was nothing for people to do. There were no parks. Uh, families lived in tiny, tiny slum residences. And some working men would do these long, arduous shifts in terrible conditions. And then when they came off work, they would go to the pub and they would proceed to get very drunk. Um, I found out for the first time researching this book that pub landlords would put salt in the beer to arrange uh, to to persuade people to drink more. And we're not talking Goza here, you know, we're talking. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and then there was, there was a, uh, a problem with, with these drunken, unhappy men then going home and, and causing domestic violence, um, sure. be- beating their wives. And so some well-meaning philanthropists said, we need to create an alternative, an alternative to the pub, a space where men can go, relax, talk to their mates, um, read a newspaper, have a cup of tea, play a game of dominoes or billiards. And that was the initial idea of the club. And they were initially intended to be teetotal. Um, that lasted for two years. And, and then... Uh, and, and we're talking we're talking about like what year, what era? 1862. All so right, the, so the 1860s. Okay. okay. Um, and it's mainly London. And, and so the working men said, well, this is a great idea. Thank you. But we, we have to have a beer. Um, at the time, at the time, even temperance campaigners were people who've taken the temperance pledge would say, my, my working colleagues uh, should have the right to drink beer while they're at work. Um, and what happened in the clubs was that beer was drunk more in moderation. There wasn't yeah. the same. There wasn't the same urge to stay and have one more because the clubs had no profit motive. So they could sell beer for less money. Uh, any profits made went back into the club. And so with those profits, the clubs would start to, they, they would add, and often the buildings were literally built by the men. You know, there were bricklayers, carpenters, uh, all this kind of thing. And and the profits go back into the club. So then they would add a, a billiards room, a, a games room. They would then add a concert hall. Uh, and initially members would stand up and sing songs uh, to their friends. Some of these got quite professional. There'd, there'd be guys who were painters and decorators who would create scenery for plays and this kind of thing. And so the entertainment side became really popular as well. And the clubs just grew and grew from there and nothing's been written about them, but they basically became the social network for working Britain through to the late 20th century. They, there's something that's so appealing about that model of a sense of place leading also, I assume, to a sense of pride. Mm. Yeah, I think so. Um, one of the one of the other reasons that the, the philanthropists started the movement was because in the 1860s, that's when a lot of working class men got the vote. And coming back to that question about men, this is why yeah. it was specifically charged to men, because the vote for women was still decades away. So, so no one gave a shit about them. Um, but because men were getting the vote, they might get some funny ideas like voting for socialists or something like that. So okay. working men had to be educated and uh, told, told the right kinds of things. Uh, they just needed to be sat down and lectured at, um, and they would and they would suddenly see the light and become model citizens. And the, the flaw with that view is that uh, it didn't recognise working-class culture. Sure. Uh, what, what they saw was an absence of culture. And so when eventually the working men kind of took control of the movement and got rid of the well-meaning philanthropists and the less well-meaning people who were trying to control them. Um, they did culture on their own terms and, and they did start putting Shakespeare plays on and things like this. And there was this enormous sense of pride, uh, as you say. So you, a guy could join a club and uh, he could, as I say, he could become an actor, a singer, 
um, a, a politician uh, that you sit on the club committees. This was the first taste of public life that a lot of these people got. By the 1920s, 217 members of UK Parliament were, were clubmen uh, who'd, who'd gone from club committees to, and they, they became magistrates, they became local councillors, all that kind of thing. So there was an incredible sense of empowerment there. Uh, Two seventeen, you said, out of out of how many? About six hundred and thirty. Wow! All right, so you know, a third or thereabouts. Yeah, that's yeah, significant. Yeah. So, uh, and then they went on and they started to do things like um, they would offer education for their members. They had libraries and, and reading rooms. Uh, they got to the point where they were running twelve scholarships for their members to go to Ruskin College at Oxford University. Uh, they started started doing uh, having baths and showers for people who didn't have those facilities at home um they sent the kids on trips to the seaside they built convalescent homes for their aging members uh, so they basically created this this social framework that that allowed people to to thrive and prosper you mentioned women um one not being able to vote but also sort of being overlooked um mm. were, were women a part of this life or was it completely segregated it wasn't completely segregated and I, but i think one of the reasons the clubs are in a very strong decline now was that they didn't address this issue of their relationship with women soon enough women gained equal rights in the club movement in 2007 um which is at least 20 years later than than most people would guess um I should explain that the, the thing that makes this movement unique, I keep call, calling it a movement, is that the, the genius idea of the guy who started it was that these clubs were not just on their own. There was a kind of the club and institute union, which the clubs were members of. And that was run on a kind of a federal basis with regional branches and a, and a head committee. And what they would do was they would give these guys, a lot of whom hadn't been educated, they would give them model rules, uh, model employment contracts. They would help them with licensing law. Um, anytime a club got into legal trouble or trouble with the licensing authorities, the, the uni would represent them and uh, would kind of then spread that learning to all other clubs. So you've got the individual club and then you've got the union and the, yeah. union, sets, the union sets club policy. Now, any club was free to determine its own policy towards women. Some clubs banned them altogether. Uh, other clubs said that they were allowed as guests with men, but not on their own. Uh, okay. Some clubs some clubs said that they were allowed in the club, but they weren't allowed to go to the bar. Uh, and the whole thing was underlined by the fact that they couldn't get equal membership. Their membership was dependent on other men. And there was a campaign from, and they started talking about equality for women in the 1950s. Uh, there was a great campaign uh, after a woman uh, called Sheila Capstick in 1978 was banned from playing on the snooker table in her club that she went to with her husband. She formed a campaign called A Woman's Right to Cues, hmm. which I thought was brilliant. Yeah. And they, they picketed the CIU conference um, and created a whole lot of noise. Uh, but the clubs that were opposed to women joining would always send members to the conference to, to prevent the vote from going through that gave women equal rights. And this was a catastrophic uh, sort of damage for the club movement. It, it's the main thing that made it start to be from the seventies onwards. It increasingly seemed old fashioned out of touch. Uh, I was, I turned 18 in 1986, which was just the start of the club's um, decline really. And for one thing at that point, 
our, our big friendship group was was male and female. You know, you know, we had girls who were platonic friends, which ten years earlier that was unusual. Uh, also, sure. if also if we were going out uh, in large groups of men, uh, the one thing we wanted to do was meet single women. And if single women weren't allowed in the club, why the hell would we go there? So, <laughs> so on the one hand, we can't. On the one hand, half our friendship group was excluded. On the other hand, if we wanted to kind of meet someone for something more than friendship, we weren't going to find them in the club. So we just didn't go. Um, and it starts to make the clubs feel really, really old fashioned. And when when it, when the change was finally passed in two thousand seven. It was only three years later that, that the kind of male-only club was made illegal under a new Equalities Act. So it's by that time, the clubs were, were very much in steep decline. In, in that vein, uh, and I hope I'm not putting you on the spot too much for this, but you know, if, if you're a young hetero man, you want to be out um, uh, you know, looking for partner and vice versa. Um, but if, were there people who were in these clubs, these men-exclusive clubs, who were looking for relationships with other men? If they were, I, I've, I've no doubt that they were. Um, but when the clubs were at their, at their peak, that would have been something that was very secretive. You, sure. you would not have wanted people to, to know about that. So there's nothing. And the thing is, there's, there's very, very little on, there's very little written about clubs on any aspect. Uh, and I've certainly not read anything on, on that one. Uh, but I've no doubt that it's true. Yeah. Um, that's right. I didn't want to put you on the spot too much, but I imagine that that was, was part of it. Um, the, when you say that there wasn't a lot written, was it because it was just a part of everyday life that most people didn't need to, like the papers weren't covering or, you know, unless it was big entertainment or something along those lines, um, or was it because of a secretive nature of, you know, members only talking to members yeah it's interesting because there's quite a lot written in the, about the first 25 years of the club movement and that's because when that's because that's when all these philanthropists and reformers were involved in the club movement so, so they wrote quite a lot about it as soon as then as soon as they're not involved anymore the middle classes and the upper classes are not writing about clubs um they are private members clubs and in the 1880s a lot of people saying well because it's working men and it's private members, the things that are going on inside that club are disgusting. And you say, well, how do you know? Well, they must be. Well, have you been in? No, because we can't go in. Right. And so there was a lot of that. <laughs> but but then added, added to that, um, these were committees of working, mostly uneducated working men. They didn't keep minutes or records. There was, there was no, they didn't document their own history uh, at all to, to the point that, there's half a dozen clubs that claim to be the oldest working men's club in Britain. Um, none of them have actually checked anywhere to see if anybody is older than them. <laughs> you know, it, it's not like the oldest pub in Britain where, well, I'm claiming it because the cellar dates back to this century, or I'm claiming it because the pub has stood on this site since this year or, or whatever. This is like, yeah, we're the oldest club in Britain. We were built in 1917. It's like, yeah, the clubs have been around for 50 years by that point, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Did you not check? <laughs> so there's a lot of that going on. And then it just, I don't know. It gets weird sometimes. Uh, I, I do my live show on this book now, and I, I have a whole bunch of books uh, that I theatrically go through and drop on the floor. So books like, you know, A History of Working Class Leisure and Entertainment, 
for example, mm-hmm. no single mention of working men's clubs. Uh, a book by a book by Paul Morley called "The North and Almost Everything in It." Not a single mention of working men's clubs. <laughs> it, at, at, at one point, ten percent of the adult population of the UK was a member of these clubs, and uh, it, in the from the fifties to the nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties pretty much any famous face on television had come up through the club circuit. And there was just no mention of it anywhere. I I mean, I I find that fascinating, but also just if it's such a routine part of everyday life, like I'm thinking, you know, like I'm not documenting when I go down to the farm market or Mm. when I go to, you know, anything else that's in my town. Um, I guess I don't do anything else in my town because I can't think of anything else aside from the farm market. Um, you love that farmer's market. <laughs> sure. I mean, you know, who doesn't love Kohlrabi's in Absolutely. season right now? Um, <laughs> but, but being that everyday part of life, it just gets taken for granted, I guess. Um, I guess so, yeah. So when you started doing the research on this, it, there must have just been roadblock after roadblock. Yeah, there was a few a few clues. There is one other person alive today who has attempted to write this book, uh, a woman called Ruth Cherrington. And she was trying to write a history of working men's clubs uh, to coincide with their 150th anniversary, which was 10 years ago this month. Uh, this month is their 160th. Uh, and she ended up self-publishing that book. Uh, she's an academic. Uh, so her, her book was interesting in that what her main thing was to collect oral histories of club members, uh, most of whom are no longer with us. Uh, so it's a really valuable book from that point of view. Uh, and mine's very much a complementary piece to hers, trying to dig, take a broader look. Uh, but she uh, referenced some interesting academic papers. You know, several people, I think about three people have done PhD theses on clubs. Hmm. Um in 1987, there was a guy who wrote the history of the CIU, the the, the umbrella body, um, which is basically taken from their records. He does a great job. Really fascinating bloke. He died last year. Uh, a guy called George Tremlett wrote the first ever biography of David Bowie. Uh, oh, cool. He, he wrote a very flattering biography of Colonel Gaddafi. Uh, which uh, was somewhat notorious. Less, less cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then he wrote the official history of the Club and Institute Union, which is a fascinating bloke. Yeah, seriously. Um, that's <laughs> fairly varied interests. Yeah. yeah. And, and he does a sterling job of taking uh, minutes and records of meetings and trying to make them sound interesting. Uh, so there's a little bit from him. Uh, I mentioned the scholarships to Ruskin. Uh, there's a guy in 1970, a Welsh, um, a Welsh uh, plumber, uh, who was a member of his club, and he got the scholarship to university. And I, I guess the tutor didn't really know what to do with him. Uh, and so he said, well, why don't you write, do some interest, uh, some research into things you know? So he started to research the club union movement, and he came to their headquarters in London and found all these mouldering uh, archives in the cellar. And so he did this interesting pamphlet in 1971, uh, which has got quite a lot of interesting stuff in it. Seven years later, that building caught fire, and all the records that he used were were destroyed so his oh. pamphlet from 1972 is is the only real guide like it was rare as hen's teeth it took me oh 18 months to track down a copy of that um so yeah it was difficult and then by the end i mentioned the, the kind of entertainment stuff and there's a whole roll mm-hmm. call of, of of entertainers musicians bands that started in in clubland and i and i was downloading their autobiographies and their memoirs onto kindle word searching working men's clubs it cost me a lot of money um, yeah. and then just getting stories that way 
So uh, Tom Jones getting his start in a working men's club when the the actor that was book booked uh, didn't show up. Uh, and three years after that, he was playing uh, the strip in Vegas. And, and when he wow. gets to Ve- when he gets to Vegas, he says, "This is just like a bigger version of the working men's club." I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, um, not intimidated by this at all. Uh, so you get incredible stories like that because the, these were. I mean, you're talking about you know building them, uh, building the clubs, uh, the members building them themselves, and then adding on rooms and adding on rooms. I mm. towards you know as it was really hitting its peak. I mean, some of these had pretty substantial concert venues even by today's standards and and what would happen um in the 60s there was a great uh rebuilding in britain a lot of the old slums were were demolished you know a lot of them were still bomb sites from the second world war and they built all these new housing estates and so in the 1960s a lot of these clubs were purpose built they they borrowed money from the breweries because the breweries knew that they were going to be selling thousands of pints of beer every night. And so then they purpose build these big venues that could see, you know, concert halls seating up to 3000 people. Some of them, um, the, the probably most famous one is the, uh, Batley variety club, uh, which is in the North of England, but Batley is a small mill town, uh, just grim as you like. It's, uh, it's not a pretty place at all. And, and it's, I say in the book, there's not much going on in the middle of Batley, and this is not even the middle of Batley. It's on, it's on a, a road on the outskirts. And this guy just he came to Vegas and he took loads of photographs of the supper clubs in Vegas, and he said we're going to build one of these in the north of England, and we're going to get the biggest stars in the world to come and play here. And everyone just thought it was insane. They really did. But but you had this quite dense population area of people who watched uh, these acts on TV, and suddenly they're literally at the end of your street. So he had Shirley Bassey there for three week residences. The first big act he booked was Louis Armstrong. Uh, he had the Bee Gees there. There's an amazing black and white uh, piece of footage of Eartha Kitt uh, playing there in 1968. And wow. she goes she goes to Batley Market, which I can tell you is, is not as nice as your local farm market. Uh, <laughs> do, do, do you know what tripe is? Uh, I, I do. I do. But I want to hear <laughs> so, your description of so it. So tri- tripe is the lining of a sheep's stomach. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of rubbery in texture. Uh, it tastes like ass. And <laughs> uh, and it's, it's quite popular <laughs> delicacy in the north of England. Oh, sure. And, and so Eartha Kitt gets bored during her week-long residency. She goes to, to Batley Market and people are just like, I mean, she looks incredible. Uh, this is the time when I think it was Orson Welles called her the most fascinating woman alive. Yeah. Uh, and she just looks ethereal and otherworldly walking through Batley. And she goes up to the uh, uh, tripe stall and asks what it is and and how to eat it. And she eats it and you can see her almost retching. And then she goes in and has some more of it. And you're just like, this is an incredible woman. And then she turns around <laughs> to the, then she turns around to the audience and says, I've been singing to you all week. What do you like to sing? What do you sing here? And there's an old Yorkshire song, I guess, I guess an old folk song, really, called On Ilklimoa Bartat, which is On Ilklimoa Without a Hat. It's like you're going to catch your death of cold. And so there's this surreal footage of, of this incredible global megastar singing On Ilklimoa Bartat in the, in the middle of Batley Market. And, and that's just the juxtaposition of, of you know, Hollywood-style glamour and the grim working-class uh, such street face of the north. It, it's the most incongruous thing imaginable. We're going to have more in just a moment, but first, thanks to the companies that help keep us on the air. 
Argentina is a lively land of agriculture, food, and fun. For Jack Sabby, those are the ingredients for a great beer culture. In talking to their friends, Andreas and Alberto, they covered a range of topics from climate to crops to barbecue parties. And this inspired the brewery to create a new lager using Malbec grape must that would pair perfectly with the social occasion and the food. They hope you enjoy this unique lager inspired by culture and conversation. Learn more about the Lagers of the World series, Destination Argentina, by visiting jacksabby.com. And Stomp Stickers is a reliable resource for printed items, such as beer labels and boxes, keg collars, coasters, and more. Visit stompstickers.com and use code BEEREDGE15 for 15% off of your first order. And now, back to my conversation with Pete Brown. You mentioned the beer and, yes. and, and the breweries, uh, and this is obviously our area of we should of, talk about of, that. Of, of interest. Yeah, I mean, I it started by teetotalers, but alcohol became part of the identity of these clubs, mm. um, as best I can tell from 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 yeah reading the book. Um, what were they drinking? What was you know it, it in some ways. It, it almost strikes me of some of the breweries that, uh, you know, knew that they were, as you said, selling thousands of pints a night. Um, it's not unlike stadiums uh, mm. today where there's yes. exclusivity contracts, where there's, uh, you know, rights, where there's, you know, well, we only drink this when we go there. Yes, very much so. And it was a curious one because, what happened around that time was uh, in about the 1880s, that's when the number of pubs in Britain peaked and it's been in a steady decline since then. So the brewers, this is all the time when, also the time when brewers had floated on the stock market to acquire more pubs. So we got to this stage very quickly where a brewery had, um, say, you know, if you were a brewery in London, you would have maybe a thousand pubs that you owned and those thousand pubs were selling your beer uh, and you couldn't sell your beer anywhere else because they were owned by other brewers. And so you got those. That's where you got your real exclusivity contracts. So on the one hand, the, these brewers resent the clubs because the clubs are growing in number while pubs are shrinking in number and the clubs are taking their, um, their, their custom away from them. But on the other hand, the clubs offer the only route for expansion in terms of getting more taps on more bars. So the brewers have this very ambivalent relationship and it doesn't take long for the clubs to notice. So the clubs are always at the back of the queue uh, when, when beer's scarce. And uh, in the First World War, they were being supplied with what was called government beer, which was about, I think, two and a half percent, but they were still <laughs> being charged the price for full strength beer. Huh. And and so the clubs did what the clubs do and said, well, if the brewers aren't going to play fair with us, we'll brew our own damn beer. And so they all across the country, the clubs consortia of clubs set up different breweries. And the most famous one is the Federation Brewery uh, of Newcastle and Gateshead uh, and Fed Bitter, uh, Federation Bitter was kind of the byword for cheap swill uh, in the 1970s and 1980s. Its reputation is, I think partly it got this reputation because the clubs would have huge tanks in the cellar. And I can still remember when I was about four years old, seeing seeing beer being delivered by tanker, like an oil tanker. Wow. And just pipes coming out and just going straight into the cellar um, and, and filling these tanks. You know, tank beer now, because they do it in the Czech Republic, is the, like, one of the coolest things in craft beer ever. You're right. Um, but but that back then it was it was about volume, 
and you see the you see the old black and white footage from the sixties of these these pints being swilled, you know, big foamy head. Uh, it's kind of low strength bitter, and it's just being consumed in huge industrial quantities. There was worry, as you mentioned in the beginning, of you know people consuming too much and uh, you know, causing scenes at home and doing you know terrible things. Um, with the amount of beer that was coming in with the did did the pendulum swing back the other way um i think it remained a problem i think i think when you look at any when you look at any um kind of temperance campaign even today um you can't deny that the problem exists because you'd, you'd be a fool to say that people never uh, abuse alcohol and and do terrible things as a result but i think the problem has always been overstated um, and and there's a there's a hypocrisy in in the club movement in that yeah I think well you've had these in the states as well but there's a club called the Hellfire Club mm-hmm. and, and and there have been Hellfire clubs in the states the first one was in London and the and the mission statement of the Hellfire Club is that affluent gentlemen can go there and commit acts which are seen as morally wrong by society. And and that's their right. And and when you read about the people who do this, start, they're, yeah, they're referred to as rakes. Uh, they're just letting off steam, uh, and it's all okay. Whereas when working class people do it, they're they're just barbarians, and they're yeah. and they're scum, and they're they're the scum of the earth. And I'm not defending domestic abuse in it by any stretch of the imagination, no. but I'm saying that you know a lot of men get drunk, and a tiny proportion of those men then go home and do domestic violence. And it's and if if it happens, it's not the alcohol that causes it because if it was, then I'd be doing it as well, and I and I never have. Right. So it's not the alcohol; it's some other factor. Like everything that's problematic with 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 alcohol abuse, the alcohol is not the cause of the problem. It's it's something else. And in the case of the working men, it was these terrible working conditions. Um, it was you know the, the frustration of, of being downtrodden and and being unhappy and seeing no escape from it. That would, and also some of them were just horrible people. You know, <laughs> there's horrible yeah. people everywhere. And it reminded me actually, while I was writing the book, the thing about it, astonishingly, now it was actually accepted in working class society as as something that was okay. And I remembered this this song that got into the UK charts. It got to number three in the UK chart in 1983, uh, and it's basically a humorous story about a man beating up his wife. Jesus. And I remember the lyrics of it. And I was just like, geez, we used to laugh at this. It was, it was a, in the, in, in the 1980s, this was still seen as a humorous story and listening to it now. It's absolutely awful. Yeah. Um, but, but this behavior was tolerated in these communities until really quite recently. Where do things stand with clubs these days so like i said they they've been through this long period of decline uh they became eventually seen as very old-fashioned in every sense uh particularly sexist uh also there was some unwelcome uh kind of racist elements to some clubs operating a color bar and things like this again a tiny minority but the problem was that the ciu supported these clubs so then that made like made it look like the whole working men's club movement was racist um Yet stories of black entertainers being booked and then turning up and not being allowed into their own concerts uh, and things like that. But more than that, 
I think the community's changed. Um, we, we no longer have these homogenous groups of men and just men all going to the same factory, living in the same streets. Uh, the new working class today is mostly in service jobs. Mm-hmm. And so where there was, where if there used to be 10 miners, there's now a delivery driver, an Amazon warehouse packer, uh, a shop assistant, a cleaner. And so everyone's got different jobs. There's no longer that sense of community. And, the, and in the day of the clubs, there was this very strong sense in working class communities of us and them. They were the authorities. They were the police. They were uh, remote bureaucratic figures. Us was salt of the earth working class people. And if you look at our culture today, that sense of us has been replaced by a sense of I. Uh, there's there's a lot less social cohesiveness, um, and it's like, well, you're special. You're you're not you're not a colleague with all your colleagues in an equal mass. You're unique. You're better than everybody else. You're worth it. Um, and you know, advertising has created that. And as an ex ad man, I speak with some authority and some guilt about that. But uh, so we have, mm. we're a much more narcissistic society than we used to be. So so clubs are down to about a quarter of the number that they were in the 1970s. Um, A lot of them, I think the average committee men who run them now are in their mid seventies themselves. Uh, And the clubs that I toured, there's some lovely spaces, but I'd say to people, well, uh, there's no young people here. And say, yeah, we don't know how to attract younger people, but the club's going to die if we don't get any. And I said, so what, how are you going to get them then? Oh, we don't know. Uh, have you thought of putting up a notice outside saying new members welcome? Oh, that's an idea. <laughs> Just like that. And, and also the, the bare minimum is, I know yeah, uh, they're, the bulbs, they're not yeah. on social media. And the thing about a young working class person today is that they live their lives on social media. That's why they build yeah. their communities and their friendships and working men's clubs are invisible. They're, they're just not there. So, yeah. There are individual clubs. I'm the member of a club in North London, which is this amazing building built in 1900. Um, it it was heading for closure. Uh, and then a, a, a comedian who lives locally called Stuart Lee um, used it as the, as the filming location for a TV series he made, a stand-up comedy series that he made. And that put it on the map for uh, film location scouts. And the building just hasn't changed in decades. And so now there's all sorts of, uh, three days a week it's booked out for filming and that saved the club and revitalized it. You know, Rene Zellweger did a Judy Garland biopic. I didn't know that. Uh, I guess it didn't do too well. Um, but but that, I mean, that I, was for- <laughs> I, I would like to see it. I enjoy Judy Garland, I, but well, I didn't. I didn't know that she did a movie. But if you do, if you do see it, then the concert scenes in that were filmed in the Mild Main in, in my in my club. Okay. Um, so this was a, a great period in the club's history where uh, my friend Lawrence, who's the vice chairman of the club, he knew that he knew that Renny Zellweger was in the building uh, and that film crew was in there. And he turned up and said, everything all right? Everything, everything going to, he's not, he's not even from the North. I'm doing a Northern accent. If anyone can tell, uh, he's from London. Is everything all right? And um, I, 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 when I'm talking about people in clubs, I can only do it in a Northern accent. Um, and, and I said, yeah, yeah. I said, one thing we didn't think about is that, is that Miss Selwag needed a green room uh, where she can relax between takes. And uh, Lawrence went, well, we haven't got a green room. Where have you put her? I said, oh, we've put her in the ladies' toilets. It's like, shit, you can't put Renny Zellweger in there. <laughs> and they said, it's okay, we put some blankets on the walls to cover up the worst bits. <laughs> <laughs> the worst bits. The worst bits. And it's like, well, so long as it's not, not, not raining, nothing should fall on her. <laughs> so, but, you know, Lord. Yeah. But, but because of things like that, because of stories like 
like that. And people using the, they've now, they've now put up uh, a new roof, so nothing will fall on anyone. They've now it's important. got a yeah. green room that artists can enjoy. Um, and it's just kind of building from there. And it, mine's not the only one like that. There are lots of places, particularly in the middle of cities, where younger generations are arriving, probably people who have left the communities they grew up in, like I did. And you find these spaces with these huge concert halls that's just sitting there unused. So huh. there's this this one up the road where um they uh they this this woman was a DJ looking for a space to a 50th birthday party and she walked in and said, I've lived here 20 years. I never knew this place was here. It's perfect. So she started a regular DJ night. Uh, I'm doing a book club night up there uh, in a few weeks' time. Um, and, and they're revitalising, but it's a small minority of them that are revitalising like that. It's a shame because there's still a role for them to play. I, I hope in the green room at your club, uh, there is a shelf with all of your books on it. Not yet. But, okay. Because I mean, when you have be. when you have the Hollywood Powerful coming through and they pick up a copy, that's how you get the film rights. This is a ah. Now you're talking. Yeah. 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 Club the movie. Right. And then when they film, because I've suggested this, uh, I just want to be an extra sitting in the back somewhere. We'll get you across for that. It's, okay. It's perfect. A good bar. Yeah. You've you've heard it here. Um, we can have a game of bingo together. Perfect. <laughs> um. When you're at your club, what do you drink? I'm lucky in that um, one of the committee members used to run a uh, beer shop, a craft beer shop. And so he's in charge of bars. So it's a delicate balance. You, you got some of the big old macro brands for because the, the old guys won't drink anything else. Um, it's Carlsberg or death, basically. And um, But then I've got some quite a few local London microbrews in there. Okay. Uh, and he also does a great line in in imports as well. So uh, mostly when I'm in there, I'm drinking Ainge Brau Hellas. Okay, that's which yeah. if you, if you if you were to tell me ten years ago that you could get Ainge Brau Hellas in a working men's club, I would have not believed you. Yeah, I mean that sounds a little bit better than Federation Bitter, but yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, I want to switch gears uh, mm-hmm. in the few minutes that we have left because, in addition to, um working on this book you have also been working on another book uh, that's slated to be released in august from camera the campaign for real ales their publishing division called world's greatest beers 250 ales and lagers from pilsen to portland and it's a, a collection of beers that you and other writers myself included yeah uh deemed worthy to be included on a list of a book that has the title world's greatest beers. <laughs> yes. And when I was first approached for this book um, and to, to submit entries, um, it was daunting because it's like, you can't, you cannot pick just 250 and no, you know, with, with the thousands of breweries that exist and, you know, we, we redefined the parameters and we, you know, we made sure that you know, it was, it was inclusive as, as best as possible. And, you know, there's arguments that popular doesn't mean best, um, mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that came up, but you do uh, a really good job in your introduction. You are the chief reviewer of this book. Um, and you do a really good job diffusing the bomb as best as possible yes. of saying, you know, take this for what it is. You know, this is our professional careers, our experiences and beers that we think that you should be drinking um, because there's going to be people who are like, this list is bullshit and you should all go to hell. Yeah. Um, when when my, you're thinking about, yeah, go ahead. 
So my, my first thing when asked to write the introduction was that I wanted to avoid uh, the standard introduction to any camera beer book over the last 40 years, which is that whatever the book is, you have to have an introduction which tells you a brief history of beer uh, and takes you through the brewing process. This is this is a mash tun. This is a copper. And it's like I was like, we're not doing that in this book. <laughs> yeah. We're absolutely not. You uh, didn't want to talk about how uh, IPAs were put on ships to age. Exactly. I've, I've done that. <laughs> I've, I've done that at great length. Um, so yeah. So so then entertaining the concept of what makes what makes something the world's greatest beer, um, and thinking about that and realizing there's absolutely no objective standard to it. Uh, so does a brewer know that they're brewing one of the world's greatest beers when, when, when they're making it, do they wake up and just go, I've had a great idea. I'm going to make one of the greatest beers the world's ever seen. I don't think it happens like that. I, I think, I think they emerge and evolve over time and gain a reputation. And I, I, I talk about, well, isn't, isn't beer awards the best way of determining what the world's greatest beers are? Um, and, and that falls down as soon as you look at it. You think, okay, well, it's, it's a panel of experts judging objectively, usually judging blind. That's the best way to work out what the world's greatest beers are. Sure. And the problem with that is um, you might, in one competition, you're being asked to judge the style. In the next competition, you're, just, you're being asked to judge it on commerciality. In the next competition, you're just being asked to judge it in terms of um, what you like the best and what appeals to you personally. Uh, in some competitions, you, you make an individual choice. In other ones, uh, you have to come to a group consensus. And so that's why, you know, the reason there are so many different beer competitions around the world, and they all come up with different results. And sometimes the beers that are objectively better than any in the competition don't enter. So that's not an accurate representation either. So this is all by way of saying, look, beauty is in the, the eye of the beer holder. Uh, and this is an objective list. Sorry, a subjective list rather. Yeah. Um, these are our favourites uh, determined by our stories, where we've encountered beers. Um, and I think the fact that there's eight of us doing it, you've got a real spread of age, a real spread of experience. Um, and different at different times, I think it's fascinating. What, the most fascinating thing for me is figuring out when someone joined the beer world and and their selection is often quite weighted to when they first got into beer and those you know the greatest beers are the ones that made your eyes open you know yeah. my first taste of an american ipa in 2004 and it's like right nothing's going to be the same now where what was the beer that was the long lost uh, bridgeport ipa in yeah. um in portland oregon and that was yeah that just my 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 yeah. my eyes opened with that beer Maharaja from Avery is on my oh, list. Yes. And that was the same experience for me the first time that I had that beer. And I think for a lot of people who have had that mm. beer as well. Um, and what I liked about this list was we all come from various backgrounds. We all drink professionally, um, but we've all had different experiences. And as much as we are mixing some new things as well, um, there's also a nod to beers that shape the world today yeah. as well that, yeah. that might be often overlooked like <clears throat> when i was putting my list together with with maharaja i hadn't had one in i don't know two three years maybe mm. and it might have even been longer but i knew that it had to be on my initial submission list um just because of how influential it had been to me and so many other people and then when you go back and have it you're like oh yeah i remember why this was so good um and they're obviously you know still making it um, what I also found really interesting was 
in, in reading through, I didn't get to see everybody's list and final list until about two weeks ago when the, the, the early PDF came through. And I note in my introduction for, for, for my section that when I was putting stuff together, um, I have a, a, a real fondness for you know, session beers, um, but also Flanders Red. Ah, right. Where yeah. like, like two or three of my beers are are in that in that sort of style. Um, and it's not until you actually look at a list like that where it's like, okay, like that tracks for what I like to drink. And it and it sort of helped define me to myself at least as a beer drinker. Um did, yeah. did you find that? Because I, I noticed that you have bitters in there and you have you know British IPAs and you know there's some really classic Belgians that are in there. Yeah as well yeah i i chose beers i think i think probably every beer i chose is an award winner in some shape or form um but you know i took liberties with things like you know barnsley bitter which is you know, the, the, it's one of those beers that is it is it a is it an individual beer or is it a beer style it's kind of on the cusp because there's two or three different barnsley bitters being made all to a similar profile and and including that, it's like, well, no one else is going to choose this as one of the world's greatest beers, but it, but it is to me because it's because it's just it's the beer that represents my hometown, and it's and it punches above its weight. It's not just your local suds. It's a beer that that has done something um, and stood out and 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 made a difference. Uh, so there's there's things like that in there for me. Um, and then by the other token, I, I wanted to give a little bit of representation to. Other places I've been where I know they wouldn't have got included. So I've put a Kenyan lager in there because I saw that. Yeah, I went there on my honeymoon and it was brilliant. And they, and they deserve they deserve a shout. Yeah, Tusker. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I saw that. And the question that I get a lot of, you know, like what is your favorite beer? Or and and it's a, it's always such a tough question to answer because I don't have one. Um, no. But I always try to point people, and I think that this book does a really good job, especially in the in the in the personal notes that people put uh, in writing this, of conveying a sense of place and where yes. we've had these beers or where these beers we think just land a little bit differently, not just on the palate, but just you know emotionally, spiritually, contextually. I've I've got a I've got um a phrase I came up with accidentally. Um, which I I haven't quite hammered out enough so that it appears on T-shirts yet, but I, I want it to, uh, which is that beer is a cultural product as well as an agricultural product. Um, and we wouldn't be drinking beer if it, if it wasn't about cultural aspects, about self, about identity, uh, about relation, relations with other people, uh, about saying something about yourself uh, and about enjoying yourself in a particular kind of space. Uh, it, it's all those things as well as a, an agglomeration of of weeds and grasses and yeasts and fungus. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to encourage everybody to go out and get a copy of this book, um, World's Greatest Beers. It's 250 ales and lagers from Pilsen to Portland. And in addition to the two of us, uh, it's Claire Bowen, it's Johnny Garrett, it's Emma Inch, it's Lonnie Peblo, it's Roger Prots, and it's Joe Stang. Um, I mean, just what a... It was a real honor for me to be among all of you uh, for all I of hope, this. But this I is, hope we can all yeah. get a drink together one day because that is a hell of a good drinking party. <laughs> the morning is going to be difficult. Yes. Um, I've been asking folks on the show uh, for, for, for the last little bit of there's a television program called The Good Place. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yes. 
Okay. Um, so in the last season, they introduced the concept of a green door where you can walk through a green door and be any place at any time um, with whoever you want to be with. And so if such a door was on our plane of existence and we could finish this conversation and you could walk through it into any brewery, any pub, anywhere in the world, where would you want to go? Who would you want to be with? And what would you like to be drinking? When you say any time, does that mean time sure. travel or does yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, it's you know, there's no rules in the afterlife. Yeah, of course, I suppose so. Uh, <laughs> uh, I I have an almost physical ache to be in Burton on Trent in the 1870s. Um, I, I it's like the, the there's um, Alfred Barnard who who wrote this book on a, a tour of all the breweries and distilleries in Great Britain in 1883, I think it was. And it describes Burton-on-Trent coming over this hill and just seeing this shining city of beer um, where houses were kind of squeezed into the tiny gaps between breweries. And I, and I, I ache to experience that because Burton is nothing like that today. Uh, there's hardly any evidence of its brewing greatness in terms of uh, the buildings and stuff. And I would like to be there and have a beer with... Oh, what's his name? Horace Tabera Brown, who was the first brewing scientist in Burton. Um, and he had to, he had a laboratory in the old uh, Bass Brewery and he had to um, whitewash the windows to his laboratory because people touring the brewery would look inside and see scientific equipment and jump to the conclusion that their beer was being doctored by chemicals being added to it. Uh, and he did a, when he was an old man in 2019, he, sorry, 1919 even, uh, it wasn't that old. Uh, in 1919, he, he just gives this very, it gave this very entertaining lecture about the history of brewing in Burton. And I want to know what that beer tasted like. Um, yeah, we all know that Britannomyces, Britannomyces, British, uh, fungus, it, it translates as it was first identified in old Burton, not, not necessarily Burton, but but British uh, keeping ales in the in the barrels that British ales used to be used to be stored in. Mm-hmm. And you you mentioned you mentioned your Flemish Reds, yeah. You know that they have a they have a common root with modern day uh, English bitter. You know, the two drinks taste completely different now, but they're both different evolutions from this breaded. Uh, English British ale that was stored for long periods of time. So I want to go there and drink that in Burton on Trent with Horace Horace Tabera Brown. I love it. I'm going to encourage everybody uh, to obviously go get your copy now of Clubland: How the Working Men's Club Shaped Britain. Um, everything you write is a treat to read. Thank so you. thank you for doing what you do. Thank you. I uh, just hope I can keep doing it. Yeah, me too. Thanks for being on the show this week. Thank you very much for having me. It's always great. Hey, speaking of books, a quick reminder that the Craft Brewery Cookbook is now on sale wherever books are sold. Get a copy today. Also, All About Beer is back online. So go visit allaboutbeer.com and catch up with great content there. And also you can visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash allaboutbeer to help support journalism in the beer space. And you can always keep in touch with me. Questions, comments, guest suggestions, email me, John Hall, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at BeerEdge.com, or you can get with me on Twitter at John underscore Hall. Check out BeerEdge.com for This Week in Rauk Beer and Defend Pilsner merch, and follow along on social media at The Beer Edge. And of course, This Week in Rauk Beer is also online. The Facebook group is easy to search, and on Twitter and Instagram, it's at T-W Rauk Beer. 
We're able to bring you this show each week, thanks to the companies that want to support independent journalism in the beer space. If you'd like to learn more about our surprisingly affordable rates, please reach out to sponsor at beeredge.com. And speaking of that, this episode is sponsored by Stomp Stickers. Stomp is a proud member of the Brewers Association that provides a wide variety of printed brewery products, such as beer labels, keg collars, coasters, beer boxes, and much more. Stomp's website features an easy-to-use design tool, low-quantity orders, fast turnaround times, and free domestic shipping. Visit stompstickers.com and use code BEEREDGE15 for 15% off of your first order. As promised, Jack Hendler is back with us. Jack Sabby is a sponsor of this episode, and I hope you'll give them a closer look. And we're talking about the Loggers of the World Series, Destination Argentina, and it's available now. Jack, this lager started over conversations while drinking cask beer, and then it evolved from there. Can you tell me a little bit about how this particular beer developed? Absolutely. This collaboration started at Mirax here, here in Boston. Uh, Andres and Alberto are both big cask ale fans and now cask lager, I suppose. And from our side, we're really interested in cask beer as well. So it was, it was two parties really interested in cask beer, meeting at Nerax, uh, and it really started this conversation about how we can collaborate in the future. So tell us again about this Argentina lager of the world and when we get it into our glass, what can we expect taste-wise and aroma-wise? When we talked to them about brewing a beer, we really wanted to bring flavors from Argentina. And we decided that bringing wine must into this beer and some hops from the Southern Hemisphere would be a great way to bring those flavors. Apparently, Argentina is actually starting their own hop growing region down there. So really excited to see what comes out of that in the in the future. Um, but this beer has a nice vinous character, strong berry flavor from the wine. Uh, and it's really interesting because it's paired with a Pilsner base. So it has a bit of a bit of bitterness, um, but the Pilsner malt doesn't conflict too much with those ingredients that we're including in this beer. That's awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to, to tasting this one. Thanks, Jack. And I'm going to remind everybody again to go check out jacksabby.com to learn more about this beer and all of the other lagers that the brewery has to offer by visiting jacksabby.com. And again, thanks for being a sponsor and thanks for being on the show. Happy to be here. Okay, quick reminder, go check out the Beer Edge podcast with Andy Crouch. Steal This Beer has new episodes every Monday, and the BYO Nano podcast comes out on the 15th of every month. And go visit allaboutbeer.com. As for this show, Nate Schweber does the music, Jeff Quinn designed our logo, and I'm John Hall. New episodes release every Wednesday, and that's when I'm going to be back again to drink beer and to think beer.